What in the world is Jesus thinking? I suspect that's what's going through the mind of this Pharisee. As they come into this meal, and Jesus does something completely unexpected, so much so that Luke tells us, in this translation we read, says surprised, the word really is amazed, stunned, taken back. Now, this, you, you get the feeling that Jesus, the invitation of the Pharisee to Jesus, is a genuine invitation. Luke does not give us any hints that Jesus is invited to this meal in order to trap him, in order to confront him, because there are times where the writers of Scripture tell us that that's the intent. And we don't get any of that. You get the feeling that this might be sort of an olive branch. And the Pharisees saying, hey, Jesus, I'd love to have you come home and eat with me. It's, a, it's an extension of friendship. And, and, of course, in that time, first century Palestine, to invite someone to a meal was indeed saying, I would like to be friends with you. And Jesus takes advantage of this opportunity. It's all set up for him to do something great, and he blows it. He blows it. Because what amazes the guy is that when Jesus comes in, he goes to the table and he doesn't wash his hands. Now, every time I read this story, I can't help but think of the signs that are in, on every bathroom mirror in every store you go into, right? And, of course, I, I sit there sometimes and I look at those signs and I think to myself, okay, if we have to tell people to do that, Maybe they should maybe they're working in the wrong industry. Maybe they shouldn't be working with food at all in any form or capacity. And then I think it must be a problem because the state or government or whatever has mandated these signs to be put up all over. Jesus is not anti hygiene. He's not pro germ either. You know, it's probably good that we release the children for children's church. I wouldn't want anyone any of them going home and saying, Hey, Jesus didn't wash his hands, I'm not washing mine. You know, walk out of church and say, what would you get out of church today? I don't have to wash my hands when I, before we eat anymore. That is not the point that Jesus is trying to make. It's really not about hygiene at all. It's about being a part of the community of God's people. There are things that the Jewish people have set up that say people who do this indicate they are a part of our of our faith and of our community. Just that, one of those things is eating kosher. One of those things would be that a Jewish man would never have a conversation with a Jewish with a woman in public. It, it's the kind of thing you wear your robes just exactly the way you're supposed to, a certain way. All of these things that are markers that say, this is what people in the community do. And... and The problem is that progresses into other things. Now, you know, you have to give the... the, What they they end up saying is that not only is this what people do, but this is what it looks like when you're part of the community. And And that means that if you're part of the community, then you're buying into all the things that the community believes. And to buy into all the community things that the community believes ultimately is to say, I'm a child of God. I'm a part of God's people. And this is what God's people do. And if you don't do these things, then you're in essence saying, I don't want to be a part of God's people. 
And ultimately, it's not just being God's people, but it's being pure. It's being righteous. Now, you have to give the Pharisees credit. Sometimes, you know, when you read the scriptures, they appear to be Jesus' favorite whipping boys. And we sort of view them that way. And there's a good reason for that. But you have to give them credit for caring about purity and righteousness. Because there are a lot of religious leaders in that day who don't care a thing about purity and righteousness. They don't care much about the community. They don't care about thinking about what it means to be God's people. There is nobody in that, in first century Palestine, that is more concerned about the scriptures than the Pharisees. There's no one who knows the scriptures better than the Pharisees. There's no one who who makes their life focused on practicing the things of the Scripture than the Pharisees. There is so much about them that, that could be good and could be right. And actually, if we were to say, what, what, would the, what would that look like in the 21st century? It probably would be maybe as close as anything to the evangelical church. Our view of the Scriptures. Taking that seriously. Taking purity seriously, seriously, taking righteousness seriously, all these things that we do, maybe that would be the connection. The problem is they have skewed that. And that's Jesus' concern with them. And Jesus sits down at the table and doesn't wash his hands. I mean, I'm sure Jesus has washed his hands. He's done that thing thousands of times. And it's not just washing your hands. There's a certain way you do it. There's a certain way holding your hands. Certainly the water is poured over your hands. It's, it's doing it the right way as much as doing it. And Jesus has done that, I'm sure, thousands of times in his life. And this time he says, no, I'm not going to do it. Because I want to use that as a way of talking to these people. He wants to shock them. And he does. And he says to them, you have allowed this ritual to become, and others like it, the focus instead of God. And that's the great problem for us. The focus is now on the ritual. The focus is now on the practice instead of on God himself. And, And we are tempted to do that as well. The things that that we think are so important to us, and they are important to us. The causes that we stand for are vitally important. The spiritual disciplines we practice are vitally important. The problem comes when when we believe they are an end in themselves. That that's the focus, instead of these things leading us closer to God or being the result of living in closeness to God. And the focus comes on that. And when that happens, we begin to live with the kind of arrogance that Jesus describes here. Because what we're really saying is, I am righteous because I practice these things instead of I'm righteous because my heart is open to God. It's pretty easy to, to recognize self-interest in other people. If you are a political conservative, 
it doesn't take long at all to see self-righteousness in progressives. And if you are a progressive, it doesn't take long at all to see self-righteousness in conservatives. Pick any other thing you want to do where we, take, we end up taking sides. We can see it in other people a mile away. The hard thing is to see it in ourselves. And I think the reason we struggle to see it in ourselves is because we say, I'm not self-righteous, I'm just right. Isn't that what we're saying? I'm right. My perspective of that is right. And we probably are right. That really isn't the thing. It's when we believe that being right somehow is more important than being open to God. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. But the temptation of the evil one is to turn it that way. And for us to think, I see self-righteousness in other people, I see the inconsistencies in other people, but I miss them in myself. And I know we do that because I do that all the time. But it's hard to see it in ourselves. That's one of the reasons why I think Jesus comes to the Pharisees and he shocks them to get their attention because it feels like that's the only way he might get through to them, to awaken them. And Jesus is not saying, stop doing these things. What he's saying is, change your focus. So what is his solution to them? Well, beginning in verse 41, after he calls them fools... He says, so clean the inside of this cup that's dirty on, clean on the outside and dirty on the inside by giving gifts to the poor, and then you will be clean all over. Now, that surprises me. I would not have expected Jesus to say that. I would have expected Jesus to say, have faith, and then you'll be clean all over. Trust in me, and then you'll have, be clean all over. Surrender to me, and then you'll be clean all over. Open your heart to me, and you'll be clean all over. But he says, give to the poor, and then you'll be clean all over. He goes on to to say a little bit more about that same kind of idea. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, because you're careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens... But you ignore justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. There is something about what we have and what we do with what we have that reveals what's in our hearts. There's something about what we do with our money, There's something about what we do with our possessions. There's something about what we do with our time and our talent and our treasures that reveals so much of what's important to us and what's in our hearts. And I think there is a connection between having a mindset of openness to God about what we have and how we treat people. I don't think I've ever known someone who was a miser who was kind and compassionate. Those things just don't go hand in hand. Some people will say, when Jesus talks about the tithe, some people will say, well, tithing, that's, that's an Old Testament concept. We don't worry about that anymore. Jesus seems to contradict that. But there is a way in which that is true, that it's an Old Testament concept and we don't worry about that anymore. In this sense, that's the baseline. 
in the New Testament, we, we, what we find out is, is that God is saying, well, when my people first came out of Egypt and I was trying to help them understand what it meant to be my people, we had to start somewhere. So I said, all right, let's do the tithe, that 10%. But as you move along, and certainly as you move into the New Testament, what you hear is not the tithe, you hear generosity. And our struggle with that tends to be, how little can I give to God and still be right with Him? Versus, how much can I give for God and His kingdom and grow in faith to see Him supply my needs? And there is that connection between having a heart open to God and giving away what God has given to us. A connection between generosity and love and compassion. They seem to go hand in hand. And Jesus touches on that. Because he said to them earlier, you're full of greed. It's one of the things that's, that's twisting you and turning you. Yeah, you do all the rituals, but you're full of greed and wickedness. Because you're trying, because you believe that life exists in what you can get. Instead of being open to the Father. And when that happens, when we wrestle with those kinds of things of what we have, even when, we're, even when we think we're giving a lot, we have to step back and say, but is my heart really generous? Now, after Jesus finishes the Pharisees, the teacher of the law comes to him and says, Jesus, what you're saying to the Pharisees kind of offends us too. And Jesus says, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean for you to think that what I was saying to them should be applied to you. Because actually, I have some things I want to say directly to you as well. And he's actually far more confrontational with them. He says that sorrow awaits them as well because they crush people with unbearable religious demands and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. Sometimes the church gets so wrapped up in our rituals, so wrapped up in the way we do things and the demands that we place on each other that it makes it harder to follow God than easier. Charles Finney was a, a great evangelist of the 19th century. and In his early years, he was a lawyer and he, had, he was wrestling with God. And he said, one day I'm going to go out into the woods. He lived just up in the Rochester area. I'm going to go out in the woods and I'm, and I'm going to settle this thing with God. And he prayed out there all day. And when he came back into his office that evening, he had this, this moment of, of profound experience with God. This almost ecstatic kind of experience with God and his life was changed and he became one of the great preachers of the 19th century holiness movement. And he did great things. But that experience was so profound for him that he said he questioned anybody who said they were a believer who didn't have that same kind of experience. And while he helped a lot of people, he also made it more difficult for a lot of people with whom God was working in different ways than God had worked with him. And sometimes even our best intentions 
When we are saying, if it, God did it this way with me, He has to do it that way with everyone else. It doesn't lead people to Him. It puts a burden on them that they can't bear. And it causes people to feel discouraged and despondent and, and, and downtrodden. And instead of experiencing the joy of the Lord, people want to just run away. And then he says to them that you killed the prophets. We read one of the examples that he mentions here from Abel to Zechariah. And Zechariah is murdered there in Second Chronicles. And, and we, we, he says that you murdered the prophets. You have silenced God's messengers. You've cut them off. And he goes on to say, you have the key to the kingdom, the secret. You know what it is, and you keep it from people. And it's almost as if Jesus is saying, it's one thing if you, if you mess up yourself. It's a whole other thing when you start messing up other people. It's one of the great fears that I live with every week when I stand up in front of you and I try to share with you what God has said to me and to do it in a, you know, often in my mind, not that well. And one of my fears is that things I say or the way I say things are going to lead you to think differently about God than we should. And that burden that's on us about how we influence other people and the kind of witness that we have It's one of the great temptations of the evil one. Historically, in the church, we see it, of this mindset that says we look good on the outside, and as Jesus says, we're rotting on the inside. And that happens to us individually. It happens to us corporately. And it ought to be one of the things that strikes fear into us as God's people, that that we we would... Give people the impression that we're perfect and we've got it all figured out and everything is together when the reality is we know different. Because that kind of mindset is not just dangerous for us, it's dangerous for others as well. And it's serious. And at the heart of that is a spirit of humility. To believe that we don't have all the answers. That we haven't figured it all out. That our goal is not to look perfect. Our goal is to try to be disciples of Jesus. Recognizing that we're on this journey and sometimes we're up and sometimes we're down. But I'm convinced that what people want from God's people is not perfection. What they want is to see lives that want Christ because then God can work through us. And we have that kind of humble, compassionate, loving spirit committed to the truth with all of our being. And ultimately, the, the thing about this story and I think about all of Scripture is that it's reflecting a skewed image of who God is. For the Pharisees, their image of God is as an unpleasing taskmaster. You can never get to the end of him. And his whole purpose of, of, of calling them his people is to put demands on them. Measure up. Do more. Follow this. And what ends up happening is you create this checklist. Because the only way we know how to feel 
pure and righteous is to check off the list. And if we can do that, we've got it. And all the while, God's saying, what I want from you is relationship. I created you for relationship. I called you out to be my people for relationship. I want you to be my witnesses in relationship. And ultimately, our struggle with self-righteousness and hypocrisy and our witness is rooted in our view of God. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have demands on our lives. He does. But it's not as an unpleasing taskmaster. It's as a loving father. And everything Jesus says here, every, even this harshest confrontation, is from a heart of love. Because only because Jesus only acts out of a heart of love. And God only acts out of a heart of love. I suspect the Pharisees didn't think that in the moment. Just as sometimes we don't feel that in our moments. When we were children and our parents scolded us harshly because we were running out into the road or doing something dangerous, it didn't feel like they loved us. But as we get older, we begin to understand that actually it was a a great act of love. And what Jesus is trying to do to the Pharisees is to awaken them. And what he's trying to do with us is to awaken us in those places in our lives that may be closed off to him. In the ways in which we think about him and the ways in which we share him. He wants to fill us with the fullness of who he is. And that out of that fullness comes truth and life and compassion and generosity and grace. Not because they're rules we follow, but because that's what it looks like when the Spirit lives in us. It's not that there's anything inherently wrong most of the time with with any with the rituals that, that might help us draw closer to God or the causes that we take a stand for or the spiritual disciplines what we practice. All of these things have value and worth as long as they are understood and lived out and practiced in the context of Christ at the center who we are. I was reading this week something about a guy named Chuck Miller who envisions this as things like this as taking a cup and a saucer and a platter and a pitcher. He says you you take the cup and you put it on the saucer and you place the saucer on this platter and imagine a pitcher full of water and you pour it into the cup and as you pour it into the cup it overflows the cup into the saucer and that overflows onto the platter and then that overflows even off of the table all around. And he says that's what happens when when the spirit is poured into us is that it begins to flow out of us. It overflows. And the answer to being compassionate and and being loving and being committed to the truth and and grace and all the things that, that God's calling us to is not that we just work harder at them. It's that we open ourselves to the Spirit. That made me think about often when I'm at a restaurant 
And one of the ways that you can tell the server if you want coffee is that you leave your cup turned up. And have your cup turned up is an indication that, yeah, I'd like some coffee. And if you don't want coffee, you turn it over. And it strikes me that one of the differences between the people who are who Jesus commends and the people that Jesus confronts is which way the cup is turned. Is our cup turned up, open, ready to receive whatever God wants to do for us? Or is our cup turned over? Blocking, saying, that's okay, I'm good. It's wonderful if our cup is clean on the outside. But if you're going, if I'm going to serve you a cup of coffee, what you really want is a clean cup on the inside. So what does our cup look like? And which way is it turned? Father, thank you that you care enough about us that you speak even words of confrontation to us to awaken us, to stir us, to give us a new vision. Father, give us grace in humility and love and yearning to make sure our cup is turned up you might fill us and that we might be agents of your filling wherever we may be. We pray this through Christ Jesus.